Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 10, Episode 16, The Battle of Sekigahara. The decisive battle that would determine Japan's future has been anthologized, mythologized, romanticized, and endlessly analyzed ever since it was initially fought back in 1600. The more recent research regarding the truth of the battle and its particulars is something we will discuss briefly in the next episode, but today I thought we should experience the Battle of Sekigahara in its full, traditional retelling, with all of its later additions, exaggerations, and, let's face it, thrilling excitement. Officially, on paper, the Go Tairo, or Council of Five Elders, were in charge of national governance after the Taiko's death, having signed their names to oaths of obedience and been given charge over the protection of young Toyotomi Hideyori. The Gobugyo, or Five Commissioners, acted as deputies who executed the will of the executive, first in the person of Toyotomi Hideyoshi and, after his death, the Council of Five Elders. However, some of the commissioners were not happy following this official arrangement, and the Taiko's body hardly had time to grow cold before rivalry, factionalism, and petty intrigues would drive a wedge between the elders and the commissioners. As I mentioned in the previous episode, there was one among the elders who was known for his austere neutrality and widely respected by his fellow elders and the commissioners alike, Maida Toshie. However, in April of 1599, he died, and with him probably died any hope of political cohesion between the rival factions governing the realm that Hideyoshi had made. Complicating matters significantly was the fact that the Taiko himself had left little in the way of guiding principles regarding the particulars of national governance after his death. These points of ambiguity were interpreted broadly by some, narrowly by others, and naturally accusations of oath-breaking and disobedience to the Taiko's will soon followed. Because Hideyoshi's own vast political authority was built upon a delicate balance of alliance, rivalry, and obedience of subordinate clans around the nation, it is not surprising that Tokugawa Ieyasu's initial steps after the Taiko's death centered around solidifying his own strength and building more solid bonds of friendship and alliance with his neighboring powers. It remains an oft-repeated truism that Tokugawa Ieyasu discarded his bonds of loyalty and oath to Hideyoshi the moment after the man had died and immediately began preparing for an inevitable endgame in which he would come out on top. While this depiction of Ieyasu as a man of boundless ambition who was only loyal to his own power remains popular, I think it is a somewhat unfair assessment of an otherwise sensible daimyo whose primary inner motivation could better be explained as pragmatism. The only way to practically ensure that the other daimyo around the nation would continue to respect the unity which the Taiko had forged was by building his own political and military strength, which could serve to keep other ambitious daimyo in line. To allow the Tokugawa clan to suffer weakness at such a moment could have spelled another hundred years of nationwide civil strife. I will admit that it is partly because the later national histories are so critical of Tokugawa Ieyasu that I tend to give him the benefit of the doubt in most circumstances. Because of later developments, it is usually assumed that Ieyasu was, from the beginning, determined to overthrow the last vestiges of the Toyotomi clan to clear the way for his own family to rule instead. 
Obviously, at some point, he decided to break his oath to Hideyoshi, or at least interpret said oath in a radically different way, but I am not convinced that he did so from the very beginning. Regardless of his intentions, by the time the final Japanese troops in Korea had safely returned to their home shores in 1599, one particular commissioner of the Gobu-gyo had firmly decided that he was Tokugawa Ieyasu's enemy. This man was Ishida Mitsunari. Originally from modest holdings in Omi province, Mitsunari had served as the police commissioner for Kyoto and Sakai, and had coordinated the nationwide sword hunt of 1588. While he had considerable military experience, he was primarily known for his administrative talents, and largely served Hideyoshi through fiscal management and administration. It's worth mentioning that he had gone to Korea along with two other bureaucrats, largely to assist in negotiations with the Ming Dynasty. He was wounded at the Battle of Hangzhou in 1593. Mitsunari had also enjoyed the many benefits of being a favorite of Hideyoshi, who frequently promoted him to posts for which his actual rank should have disqualified him. He had a taste for intrigue, and it is usually assumed that he inspired some of the other commissioners to bring charges against Tokugawa Ieyasu that he was violating the Taiko's orders by arranging political marriages for his own children without permission. Ieyasu protested that his only intention was to build strength to support Hideyori, not to pursue his own ambitions. Although Maida Toshiye had the charges dismissed, this was to be the first of many such attempts on the part of Ichida Mitsunari to topple the great daimyo of Kanto. Mitsunari tried to inspire conflict between Toshiye and Ieyasu, but these attempts largely came to nothing, and the two men only seemed to have grown closer in spite of Mitsunari's machinations. After Maida Toshiye died, his heirs swore fealty to Tokugawa Ieyasu, a development that no doubt infuriated the already frustrated Mitsunari. However, with the death of Maida Toshiye, new fears began to spread that there would no longer be anyone to restrain the boundless ambitions of Tokugawa Ieyasu. Certain that Ieyasu was planning to supplant Toyotomi Hideyori, Ishida Mitsunari began to build a coalition which could resist him through force of arms. In the midst of this alliance gathering, Ishida Mitsunari also made two attempts at assassinating Tokugawa Ieyasu. The first, in January of 1599, was revealed to Ieyasu and thus came to nothing, while the second, in March of that year, also failed. I was unable to find more specific information about either of these, and we will discuss the odds of their real-world existence in the next episode. While Tokugawa Ieyasu had his share of bitter enemies, Ishida Mitsunari had likewise collected a few. Kato Kiyomasa held a grudge against him after Mitsunari gave him no credit for holding the fortress of Ulsan against Ming assault. Kiyomasa was not alone in his dislike of Mitsunari, who hewed much closer to the image of an administrator than he did a brave warrior like themselves. When Kato Kiyomasa and some of his like-minded daimyo heard rumors that Ishida Mitsunari had engaged in attempts on Ieyasu's life, they were outraged that this up-jumping pencil pusher would utilize such underhanded means. They organized posses in Kyoto and roamed the streets searching for Mitsunari with the intention of ending his interference permanently. Mitsunari got wind of their approach and fled quickly, avoiding their patrols and trying to find a safe place to take shelter. Having few, if any other, options, he fled to Fushimi Castle, 
where Tokugawa Ieyasu was staying and threw himself on the mercy of his greatest foe. Ieyasu must have felt no small amusement that Mitsunari was coming to him for help, and although allowing him to be killed may have solved a future problem, it seems that Ieyasu was convinced that Mitsunari might serve some other purpose yet. He went outside and told the angry daimyo and their posses that while he appreciated their support, it was far more practical to confine Mitsunari so that he could not work such mischief in the future. They agreed and dispersed, while Mitsunari was sent under guard to Sawayama Castle in Omi Province, which was the centerpiece of his domain. From there, he continued to correspond with other discontented clans and potential allies about forming a great army to resist Tokugawa supremacy. The most impressive and powerful member of this great army was Mori Terumoto. This member of the Council of Five Elders was its second wealthiest. The annual yield of his domain was 1.2 million koku, and he could afford to field tens of thousands of troops. Although Terumoto was the official leading general of this alliance, he would not be present at the coming battle, but would instead stay in Osaka protecting young Hideyori, while his nephew Mori Hidetomo would attend the battle in his stead. The coalition which Ishida Mitsunari was building would be known as the Western Army, because many of the daimyo who joined this faction were from Western Japan. There were some familiar names among the Western Army leadership. Niwa Nagashige, Uesugi Kagekatsu, along with his fellow member of the Council of Five Elders Ukita Hideye, Konishi Yukinaga, Chosokabe Morichika, and Kuki Yoshitaka, among many others. Mitsunari's just cause for this conflict was that Tokugawa Ieyasu was amassing power for himself, which he would eventually use to overthrow young Hideyori, and that his continual disobedience to the Taiko's orders must be punished. As a battle standard and as his personal crest, Mitsunari had an arrangement of six kanji which read Daiichi, Daiman, Daikichi, which translates to Great One, Great Multitude, Great Prosperity, which is usually interpreted to mean when one works for all and all work for one, it makes a prosperous world. Aspirational words, indeed, but the Western Army was not a coalition of high-minded scholars. The glue that held the Western Army together was an intense dislike, sometimes a hatred, of Tokugawa Ieyasu. Some resented him because he had not served in the invasions of Korea as they had. Others were jealous of the considerable wealth he extracted from his domain, which annually yielded 2.5 million koku. It is no surprise that over the course of his stellar career, which had resulted in his gaining one of the most powerful positions in Japanese politics, he managed to earn a few enemies. There was one daimyo, however, who was fighting alongside the Western Army, but who had reason to despise Ishida Mitsunari as much, if not more so, than Tokugawa Ieyasu. This samurai was Kobayakawa Hideaki, one of Hideyoshi's nephews, who became an adoptee, but was later readopted by the Kobayakawa clan when Hideyoshi was trying to narrow down his choice of successor. Hideaki had gained fame for arriving at Ulsan when it was besieged by the Ming army and charging his forces directly into the enemy besiegers and driving them off, ending the siege. He had even fought on the front lines with his troops, killing enemy soldiers with a spear. However, when he returned to Japan, the Taiko scolded him for being reckless with his own life and thus endangering the success of the invasion. He was stripped of his domain of Chikugo province in western Kyushu and demoted, 
a humiliating result of an unequivocally brave action. Shortly after his humiliation, rumors circulated that it was Ishida Mitsunari who had lobbied for his punishment. It is generally believed that none other than Tokugawa Ieyasu had given birth to these rumors, hoping to drive a wedge between Kobayakawa Hideaki and Ishida Mitsunari. When Hideaki expressed his intention of fighting for the Western Army Coalition, Mitsunari assumed that he was doing so out of loyalty to his late uncle Hideyoshi. As we will see shortly, however, the traditional account claims that Hideaki still harbored uncertain loyalties. For his part, Tokugawa Ieyasu managed to attract some of the most able and successful daimyo of the age. Joining the considerably talented Kato Kiyomasa was Kuroda Nagamasa, Maeda Toshinaga, the son of the late Toshiye, and Date Masamune, whom I will feature in an upcoming bonus episode. Ieyasu also took additional steps to strip Ishida Mitsunari's allies in the higher echelons of government of their authority, starting with the expulsion of several of his fellow commissioners from their posts and appointing his own partisans in their place, with one of the posts being given to his son, Hideyasu. He took up residence in Osaka Castle, which had famously been Hideyoshi's seat of power. While accusations that Ieyasu was disobedient to the Taiko's will were rampant during this time, these were handily ignored by those supporting Ieyasu thanks to Mitsunari's earlier assassination plots. Self-defense covers a multitude of sins. Meanwhile, one of the members of the Council of Five Elders, Uesugi Kagekatsu, had departed Kyoto suddenly and took up residence in his domain of Aizu, in southern Mutsu province, and proceeded to renovate many of his castles. As construction of new fortifications without permission was forbidden, Tokugawa Ieyasu sent summons to Uesugi Kagekatsu for him to return to Osaka and explain his actions. Kagekatsu's agent, Naoe Kanetsugu, sent a reply in which he curtly refused to offer any explanation or return to Kansai, and also listed Ieyasu's various violations of the late Taiko's edicts. Thus, Tokugawa Ieyasu initiated a new incursion into Tohoku, which would gather 50,000 warriors at his disposal to punish Uesugi Kagekatsu in the summer of 1600. If this sounds like a suspiciously well-timed diversion, that's because it was. Kagekatsu had allied with Ishida Mitsunari, and his disobedience to Ieyasu was part of a larger plan. The idea was to lure Ieyasu away from Kansai so that Mitsunari would have time to gather his army and defeat the Lord of Kanto once and for all. Even in the midst of his preparations, however, Ieyasu was aware of the larger plan that had been set into motion. Before departing for the east, he stopped at Fushimi Castle, where an old friend and retainer named Tori Mototada served as his castellan. To call Mototada merely an old friend, however, is to undersell his relationship to Ieyasu and the Tokugawa clan at large. His family were hereditary retainers of the Matsudaira, and he, like Ieyasu, had grown up as a hostage of the Imagawa clan. He had served as Ieyasu's page since before Ieyasu had undergone his coming-of-age ritual, and Mototada had risen in the ranks of the clan to become one of Ieyasu's most trusted generals and advisors. The night which the two men spent reminiscing and drinking tea together in late July of 1600 would be the last time either saw the other, and both of them knew it. Already Mitsunari's western army, 40,000 strong so far, was coalescing and marching toward Kansai. There was no doubt that they would take every castle loyal to Tokugawa Ieyasu on their journey to confront him. 
Tori Mototara swore to his liege lord that he and his humble garrison of 2,800 would defend Fushimi Castle to the last man when the time came. Mototada was later considered a sort of patron saint of Bushido. He wrote a famous letter to his son at the time which read, quote, It is not Bushido to be shamed and avoid death even under circumstances that are not particularly important. For myself, I am resolved to make a stand within the castle and to die a quick death. It would not take much trouble to break through a part of their numbers and escape, no matter how many tens of thousands of horsemen approached for the attack, or by how many columns we were surrounded. But that is not the true meaning of being a warrior, and it would be difficult to account as loyalty. Rather, I will stand off the forces of the entire country here, and die a resplendent death. End quote. Tokugawa Ieyasu departed from Osaka on July 26, 1600, traveling along the highway Tokaido at a slow, easy pace, and not arriving in his home base at Edo until August 10th. He spent the rest of the month there making preparations, writing to absent vassals that he required their service, and waiting to see what Ishida Mitsunari would do in his absence. In early September, he finally relocated his headquarters to Oyama in Shimotsuke province of northern Kanto, allegedly to initiate the punitive invasion of the Uesugi domain Aizu, which was just north of his position. However, Ieyasu had no intention of marching his army into Aizu domain. Date Masamune and Mogami Yoshiaki had already led their own troops into Aizu, and the fighting that ensued favored these two allies of Ieyasu. Mogami Yoshiaki was the father of the concubine who, back in 1595, arrived in Kyoto after Hidetsugu's death, never having met him, yet was still executed as part of his family regardless. Such was his desire for revenge against pro-Toyotomi partisans that he fought alongside the Date clan, with whom his Mogami clan had long entertained hostile relations. Whatever his faults, Ieyasu certainly knew how to bring people together. Ishida Mitsunari, meanwhile, busied himself with seizing control of Kansai. Mori Terumoto occupied Osaka, which was not difficult because most of the Tokugawa troops had departed with their liege lord. Tori Mototada, true to his word, refused to surrender Fushimi Castle. For ten days the Western army besieged Fushimi, their assaults repulsed by the indefatigable garrison. After ten days, an impressive span of time to endure such abuse, the attackers finally gained the upper hand and stormed into the castle. Tori, Mototada, and the members of his family who were present retreated to the central keep, committing seppuku when the tenshu was on fire. Thus was his place as future patron saint of the cult of Bushido firmly established. Mitsunari intended to seize strong positions in Mikawa province and face down Ieyasu's army there. However, he had fallen for Ieyasu's ruse, assuming that the lord of Kanto would be kept busy by his supposed campaign against the Uesugi. On September 11th, Ieyasu began his great westward march, dividing his forces between the coastal Tokaido and central Nakasendo roads to more efficiently transport them to the main battle against the western army. Ieyasu's objective was to face the western army in Mino province, while they were still solidifying their position. In fact, Mitsunari had already faced considerable hostility from clans loyal to the Tokugawa in Omi, Tango, and Ise provinces. 
Mitsunari hoped that Mori Terumoto might lead the Western Army in battle against Ieyasu, which would have certainly been an interesting turn of events. The Mori clan was the second wealthiest clan in the nation, with only the Tokugawa's land being more productive. Terumoto was respected as well, and likely would have known how to get the cobbled-together group of daimyo who composed the Western coalition to work together more effectively. However, Terumoto was determined to stay in Osaka with Hideyori in his care. Thus, Mitsunari had no choice but to try and take the reins. During the siege of Fushimi, Ieyasu was far from idle. The two broad divisions of his army marching along Tokaido and Nakasendo met where the roads converged near Gifu Castle. This fortress had become the seat of Oda Hidenobu, the son of Nobutada and grandson of Nobunaga who had been declared as Nobunaga's official heir thanks to Hideyoshi's political wrangling. Now 20 years old, he had ascended to the chieftainship of the Oda clan, but only after the Oda had been muscled out of higher government by Hideyoshi's Gekokujo. Mitsunari's plan involved using Gifu Castle as a staging point and resupplying there before marching into Mikawa to face off against Ieyasu. Instead, Ieyasu's forces advanced upon Gifu Castle. After some skirmishing with Hidenobu's troops in the vicinity and maneuvering around their positions for surprise flank attacks, the eastern army reached Gifu Castle, which fell to their assault in a single day. Hidenobu surrendered after his army had been whittled to only a few dozen men, and agreed to take vows as a monk. He would later be sent to Mount Koya, but his defeat would not spell the end of the Oda clan, whose family name remains popular in Japan today because of their many descendants. The fall of Gifu Castle on September 30, 1600 was an extremely timely accomplishment for the Eastern Army, as Ishida Mitsunari and his Western Army had just arrived at Ogagi Castle to the southwest. Mitsunari was well appraised by now of the Eastern Army's surprisingly rapid progress, and at this point hoped to use Ogaki and Gifu castles together to halt Ieyasu's eastward march. Mitsunari and his commander spent a few weeks deliberating their next move, when suddenly in mid-October, contingents of Ieyasu's Eastern Army began arriving just a few miles from their castle. One of Mitsunari's most ardent supporters and retainers was a former ronin named Shima Sakon. He persuaded Mitsunari to allow him to take some of their troops and immediately attack some of the Tokugawa positions at the Kuise River, where some of the eastern troops were isolated from their allies by the river itself. With 500 men, Shima Sakon attacked a contingent of around 6,000, surprising his foes with a lightning ambush. After a few moments of fighting, he called for a retreat, and the division he had targeted pursued them across the river. As soon as they had crossed, another division of 800 who was aiding Shimasakon sprang from their hiding places, and the second ambush scattered many of the Eastern Army warriors. Casualties for the Eastern Army are estimated to be around 4,000, two-thirds of that particular division, while the smaller number of the Western Army who had attacked lost only a few people of their own number. The Battle of Kuisegawa was an inauspicious beginning for Tokugawa Ieyasu, who watched these events unfold from a distance as he ate dinner. Although he had certainly arranged for this battle to take place, he had good reasons to worry that he might not come out ahead. He had engaged in some backroom correspondence with some of the daimyo supporting the Western Army, but in many cases had no assurance of their help in the battle to come. His son Tokugawa Hidetada had, against his father's orders, become bogged down trying to seize Ueda Castle, 
whose commander, Sanada Masayuki, a legendary strategist, was ably protecting the castle from Hidetada's army of 38,000 with a mere 2,000 defenders. I'm reminded of a proverb attributed to Central Asian conqueror Timur the Great, quote, It is better to be on hand with 10 men than absent with 10,000, end quote. No doubt Ieyas wished he had Hidetada's 38,000 on hand for the impending battle, as he was slightly outnumbered. The Western Army had around 120,000 troops in the immediate vicinity, while the Eastern Army had only around 75,000. What the Eastern Army lacked in raw numbers, however, the Western Army lacked in clear chain of command. Mitsunari did not carry the same respect among his coalition that Ieyasu did among his vassals and allies, and this would become a problem once the battle began. Ishida Mitsunari arranged for the Western Army to be deployed in the hills in an area known as Sekigahara. If Ieyasu hoped to march on Osaka and gain control of Hideyori and reclaim his position as the leading man in Japanese government, he would have to go through the Western Army here. On October 21st, 1600, the Battle of Sekigahara began. In the early morning hours, a thick fog blanketed the area. When a sudden breeze kicked up, the fog was blown away and both armies saw one another for the first time. The Eastern Army attacked first when the commander of its rightmost division charged the enemy's left directly ahead. Other divisions followed across the line and battle commenced with arquebus shots, clashing swords, and jabbing spears. Both Mitsunari and Ieyas observed the proceedings from high positions on their respective sides. Seeing that the Eastern Army's right could be enveloped and perhaps the battle won shortly thereafter, Mitsunari sent an order to the Shimazu clan to reinforce the battle line there and try and smash through the enemy's right wing. Shimazu Yoshihiro disregarded this order, however, replying that the Shimazu would attack when they were good and ready. It was beneath Yoshihiro's samurai honor, it would seem, to obey orders from a man whom he considered his inferior. Meanwhile, on the Western Army's right wing, there were several divisions which had been deployed as reserve troops and had not yet entered the fight. The most important among these battalions was the 16,000-strong force of Kobayakawa Hideaki. Although he had assisted the Western Army thus far, Hideaki had secretly agreed to help Tokugawa Ieyasu during this battle. Now that his moment arrived, he appears to have hesitated. To spur the decision process along, Ieyasu is said to have ordered a contingent of arquebusiers forward to close distance with Hideaki's troops and fire unloaded muskets at them as a warning. This spurred Hideaki into action. Hideaki commanded his 16,000-strong contingent to attack the closest division who was already engaged in fighting against the Eastern Army. This group, about 4,000 strong, was the army of Otani Yoshitsugu, who managed to turn a defensive line against Hideaki's charge and actually managed to get the better of the turncoat division at first. It's possible that the daimyo of the Otani suspected Hideaki's betrayal, and some sources even claim that he chose that particular position in the Western Army's deployment to keep an eye on the young man. While Hideaki's division was held off ably by Otani defenders, Two other divisions of the Western Army who occupied the right flank now took the opportunity to defect as well, attacking their now former compatriots who struggled to maintain their cohesion as they were now effectively being flanked on their right. One by one, the contingents that composed the Western Army's right wing retreated, and those who had defected to the Eastern Army continued their massive envelopment flank. 
Another problem that had developed for the Western Army was the refusal of the Mori contingent to enter the battle. Led by Kikawa Hiroye, they continually refused orders from Mitsunari to enter the battle, at one point sending away a messenger by saying that Hiroye was eating at the moment and wanted to be left alone. Behind the Mori troops, the Chosokabe waited for their opportunity to win glory. Because the Mori troops did not enter the battle, the Chosokabe never got their big chance. The Shimazu had, meanwhile, finally entered the battle, but it was far too late. The various commanders of the Western Army were already retreating. Otani Yoshitsugu committed seppuku and his retainers buried his head somewhere in the vicinity. Shimasakon, who had led the first audacious attack against the Eastern Army's positions at the Battle of Kuisegawa, was killed by an arquebus. The Western Army scattered and a week thereafter Ishida Mitsunari was captured. Tokugawa Ieyasu had won the Battle of Sakigahara. Armies loyal to him suffered casualties between 4,000 and 10,000, while the Western Army lost somewhere north of 20,000. It is generally agreed among traditional accounts that at least 30,000 warriors died fighting at Sekigahara, though the number is possibly much higher and potentially far lower. The battle itself is an endless source of historical speculation, analysis, and fascination. With the defeat of the Western Army, the last remaining obstacle to Tokugawa Ieyasu's supreme leadership was removed. While there were some cannons utilized at Sekigahara, they did not have much of an effect on the outcome of the battle. Slow to reload and soaked from the rain that fell the night before the battle, their presence is nevertheless notable because of their country of origin. These were not Spanish or Portuguese artillery. They had come from England. Next time, we will discuss how these English cannons came to be in Tokugawa Ieyasu's possession, as well as how he would follow up his battlefield victory and what modern scholarship tells us about the real events at Sekigahara. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan.